I'm Amy Mullins, and you're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. Uncommon Sense is broadcast every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm on 3RRR FM. Today, January 31st, we spoke with Ben Eltham about federal politics and its intersection with the US political situation at the moment. Then we spoke with Fiona Wright, 2016 Stella Prize shortlistee and the author of an excellent essay in the lifted brow at the moment called There's No Dirt in My Food. Fiona spoke about her lived experience with an eating disorder and also her um, really piercing insights into society's problematic language around and behaviours around food and eating. Then we spoke with Lars Kralmer, a German director of the film The People versus Fritz Bauer, or in German, De Start gegen Fritz Bauer. And that is about the true story of the German Jewish man who was behind the hunt and capture of Adolf Eichmann. Then finally, we spoke with Dr. Richard Dennis, who's the chief economist at the Australia Institute, and he was speaking about his piece in the monthly, uh, the February edition, which is called A Big Dump, and it talks about the South Australian government's interest in pursuing a nuclear waste dump in the state to bring nuclear waste from overseas and store it in South Australia. And so Richard joined us from Canberra via phone to talk about the economic modelling behind this proposition and also the economic modelling that he himself and other economists have done for this proposal and also looking at the health and environmental risks that uh, are involved with this particular policy. Policy proposition. I hope you enjoy the show and look forward to seeing you again next week. I'm Amy Mullins with Ben Eltham right now in the studio and Ben is here to chat with us about federal politics and the very weirdly uncanny uh, connections and similarities between um, Australia and America at the moment. So we're going to be covering American and Australian politics in one really today. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Morning, Amy. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, not bad. I'm loving the 22 degrees myself, so I'm feeling quite happy about this week. Yeah, yeah. Summer's nearly over, isn't it? The Australian Open's finished and school's nearly back and, you know, it's it's time to get started for the year, I suppose. Back to normal, yeah. yeah. And also, interestingly, we've got uh, Turnbull, who'll be making his National Press Club address on Wednesday, which will really hit home that we're all back and, um, you know, ready, raring to go in federal politics land. Yeah, well, I mean, it's tipped to be about climate policy, but given the extraordinary events of the last fortnight in the United States, I wonder if indeed Turnbull might rewrite his speech, but I guess we'll find out tomorrow. Indeed. And also, just interestingly, there's so many things happening with US politics, as we were mentioning before. And I mean, just on the weekend, there was just so much happening. If you're a a Twitter user, you would probably feel quite inundated and flooded with information because we had this issue... Um, in response to the bans on people coming from certain countries where apparently, um, you know, they may be threats uh, to the US because they may, th- they may pose a terrorist threat. This, there's been these bans and then these people have been caught up in bans, including dual citizens. So people who are a citizen of the US and may uh, also have come from Iraq or, um, you know, have even at co- their country of origin, even if they're not a citizen, even if they've denounced the country that they've come from, they're still affected by this ban as well as green card holders who are permanent residents in America. And we see that they've been detained um, at the airports. And then we saw, you know, these emergency court sessions 
discussions happening where uh, we had pro bono lawyers in America seeking to stop temporarily this uh, detention of people at airports um, to prevent them from coming back into the country in many cases. Yeah, I mean, it's been extraordinary scenes in America. Um, So this is all due to an executive order signed by President Donald Trump where he placed a 90-day ban on people coming into the United States from a list of seven countries, including Iran and Iraq and Somalia, and there's a number of other countries as well, and it's a blanket ban. So it's affected, as you say, green card holders, uh, legal permanent residents of the United States, dual citizens of the United States and other countries. Many Australian citizens have been caught up in the chaos. Uh, And really, I I think it's the first sort of taste of of what a Trump presidency is going to look like. And uh, frankly, for those of us who believe in liberal democracy, it's a pretty scary uh, vision of of America. So um, really quite extraordinary scenes at at, uh, particularly JFK Airport and also Dulles Airport in Washington, where, yeah, as you mentioned, we had uh, pro bono human rights lawyers swing into action and fight the United States government um, in the courts to try and get a stay on this executive order. Um, But, uh, you know, also reports that the US uh, immigrations and customs officials are not not, uh, complying with that court order as well. So, um, you know, just just very, very uh, alarming and amazing things happening in the United States. I'll just mention another one. Uh, Trump announced the makeup of his National Security Council, the highest security body in the United States government. Uh, There are no military uh, or intelligence people on that committee, but the person who will be on that committee is Steve Bannon, uh, the very far right-wing former head of Breitbart News. So uh, that's an extremely concerning development there. Absolutely. I mean, what was somewhat heartening over the weekend was to see that protests, um, you know, at multiple airports started uh, against these ridiculous um, (laughs) detentions of people. And also that there's a lot of... um, what was most concerning at the time was this really a lot of misinformation and confusion, even from government officials, as to what the policy was and what they were supposed to be carrying out in regard to this executive order. Absolutely. I mean, as it's emerged, we found out more about how this executive order was drafted and then written. Um, it doesn't appear to have had any input from the career bureaucrats in the United States State Department. In fact, it looks as though Trump has pushed out nearly all the senior administrators and officers in the State Department over the last week. Again, another very concerning development. Um, The executive order itself is clearly very sloppily drafted, you know, badly drafted. That's probably um, helped the the human rights lawyers uh, fight it in the courts, but it's still extremely... Uh, chaotic, chaotic scenes, obviously. And of course, it's playing into Australian politics and uh, Australian politicians, particularly the, the government, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and uh, and others are being asked what they think about this. And uh, I think that's been a really revealing set of 24 hours, you know, over the last day or so as we've watched the Australian government, you know, kind of basically decide that they're okay with this, that they kind of, you know, think that there's nothing wrong with strong borders and that really Donald Trump's strong border rhetoric is is pretty okay with the coalition government. And I think that should give many Australian voters significant cause for uh, 
reflection at least, but maybe also deep concern as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned there the response from Australian politicians. We saw Scott Morrison, the Treasurer of Australia, come out and say that really other countries are just catching up to Australia and they're, um, you know, coming up to our level of excellent uh, immigration policy and strong broad border protection um, and that he really didn't have much of a problem with Trump's policy, that he was just implementing a policy that he had promised. Yeah, well, I mean, now is the time, I think, to come face to face with the implications of Australia's border protection policy rhetoric over the last decade. Uh, we've we've created a, an inhumane system where people's human rights have been systematically eroded and indeed even just stripped away from them. Um, and we're now in a situation where the elected government of Australia is really pretty gung-ho for a world made up of walls, you know, a world constructed of barriers, barriers to entry, barriers to trade, barriers to human movement, and barriers, most importantly, to the rights of human beings. And I think, uh, you know, so in terms of consistency, you know, yes, Morrison is is absolutely right. Donald Trump is catching up to Australia's um, incredibly inhumane border policies. But I think considering what else is happening in the United States, the erosion of liberal democratic institutions represented by Donald Trump, I think we should be deeply concerned that the Australian government is getting into bed with a far-right government. Absolutely, and there's been concerns not only um, for Australia and our potential complicity in that, but also Theresa May, who made an official visit, the first official visit of a leader, um, and really didn't mention or comment upon, actually sought to avoid commenting upon this um, this ban in the press conference that they held together. Um, certainly she's put in a difficult position, um, not only because she's a female leader and there were certainly some disturbing images of Donald Trump grabbing her hand and her being very polite and not dropping that hand, but also, you know, that she was there um, with an issue of Brexit um, in in the back of her mind and needing to actually make deals with Donald Trump. And certainly it puts Britain in a very difficult position. So now overnight we've seen that 1.1 million people have signed a petition in the British Parliament to ask that Donald Trump not come to uh, Britain on an official state visit because it would uh, not only humiliate the Queen Elizabeth but also um, not be appropriate. Yeah, I mean, absolutely fascinating ways that the politics of these issues is playing out. So Theresa May, the United Kingdom's Prime Minister, uh, she's the new Prime Minister really because she's inherited the government from the smoking ruins of the David Cameron administration, which was destroyed by the Brexit referendum. Cameron, of course, resigning. Um, and, and May has given a speech saying Brexit is Brexit. So she's going to go for... Uh, a rapid and pretty systematic exit from the European Union. And that places her in, in a very difficult position in terms of negotiating with various other countries. And and what to do about Trump? I mean, this is the, the problem that faces all uh, allies of the United States uh, as the United States, you know, is descending into crisis. I think it's it's not too far to say that, you know, the United States is now in a, a significant democratic crisis, the likes of which we probably haven't seen since 1860. So, I mean, this is very, very um, serious stuff. I mean, these are world historical events playing out in front of our eyes. 
Um, I'll just mention, by the way, that after that press conference with uh, Donald Trump, May put out a statement criticising the the Muslim ban. So after pressure from people within her own party and, of course, also opposition parties in the UK parliament, she's actually then come out against the ban. So um, if you look at the world leaders who've criticised the US's immigration ban, Australia's really out on our own as one of the only countries, one of the only democracies that thinks this is a good idea. Um, in New Zealand, Bill English has criticised it. Angela Merkel in Germany has criticised it. Apparently explained the Geneva Convention to Donald Trump on the phone. Yeah, that's where we're at. The uh, German Chancellor is explaining the Geneva Convention to the US President. Uh, you know, uh, people must be turning in their graves. Um, uh, so even John McCain has come out and criticised this, Republican Senator John McCain. So uh, in, important people of the right or the conservative side of the politics globally are very concerned about what's going on in America, but not apparently Malcolm Turnbull or Scott Morrison. Absolutely. And the other thing that um, you mentioned here about uh, conservatives and uh, people being critical, we've seen um, the former US ambassador to Australia, Jeffrey Black, who um, a, a quote from his statement on Facebook uh, just overnight is that he, he criticises this policy and says, I take no pleasure in condemning our nation's actions, but the hottest places in hell are reserved for those in times of great moral crisis that maintain their neutrality. Yeah, I mean, very strong statement from Jeffrey Blush. Uh, he's a Democrat and an Obama appointee, so perhaps we'd expect him to be critical, but still... Still a diplomat, which is usually yeah. they take a very conservative stance in terms of passing judgments. Well, one of the things that's happened in the Trump administration, of course, is that all of the career diplomats have been sidelined, if not sacked. So, uh, you know, it, it's starting to look like a little bit of a democratic coup. I mean, we don't want to use that term loosely, but uh, if you look at the erosion of the liberal democratic institutions that are meant to keep America democratic... Um, there's been very significant erosion of those already in the two weeks since Trump has taken office. And now we're hearing rumours that there's another executive order waiting in the wings and that this one will be directly targeted at the gay and lesbian community in the United States. So that is also obviously extremely concerning as well. Very concerning. And if we bring it back home to Australia, looking at that executive order, um, which does ban people, certain, certain people from certain countries temporarily, um, when we look at the, the drafting of that, it actually does mention, or, and apparently it was a late addition, that um, there, there may be exceptions as in certain agreements that have been made prior to this executive order that will be allowed. And that's a, a nod to Australia and our agreement with uh, President Obama around um, some of the refugees subject to interviews and vetting by Americans will um, have the chance to move to America instead of remain on these islands in detention. Um, over the weekend, we saw these mainstream media journalists saying that this is a huge coup, that Donald Trump um, has, you know, privately agreed with Malcolm Turnbull that, yes, we'll, we'll stay true to our agreement and that that must mean Australia um, has high standing in Trump's eyes. What do you think of this take on that development? I think very little of that take, Amy. Very little indeed. I mean, firstly, we have no evidence that Trump has 
you know, is going to stand by any agreement. We don't have the text of the agreement. There's been no official announcement of a refugee swap. All we know is that uh, in the dying days of the Obama administration, the Turnbull government negotiated some kind of an in-principle agreement to swap some refugees to take some of those poor, benighted souls out of the prison camps in Manus and Nauru and send them to America. Now, whether Donald Trump will honour that agreement, if indeed it even is a formal agreement, um, only time will tell. But uh, clearly, you know, whether or not that happens, it's not going to take away from the fact that the US has radically changed its immigration policies. He's planning to build a wall with Mexico. He's done this executive order. Um, Many and many of those refugees on Manus and Nauru are from Iran or Iraq already, so it's hard to see how they would be allowed into the United States given what's happened in the last week. Uh, So there's so many questions to be answered there. I I find it astonishing, really, that the apologists for the Trump administration and the Australian media would run this line. But I suppose that's a a reflection of the increasingly polarised nature of of politics in 2017 when people that I used to think of as uh, small C conservatives are people who believed in the rule of law, uh, in the value of long-standing institutions, suddenly seem to want to get into bed with a neo-fascist administration. It's it's a very strange time. It is very strange. And what has Labor's response been to this, Ben? Labor's response has been principled and reasonably strong, but of course we have to have the caveat that Labor still stands by uh, the bipartisan policy of of boat turnbacks and no advantage for people coming to Australia by boat and ultimately in the existence of the Manus and Nauru prison camps themselves. So um, while Bill Shorten has put out a statement saying that Australia has a non-discriminatory immigration policy, itself a very, very controversial statement because it's hard to see how Australia can possibly say we have a non-discriminatory immigration policy given what we know about Australia's immigration policies over the last 15 years. Having said that, Labor has still been reasonably um, critical of the Trump ban and and they've come out quite strongly criticising it. So, you know, in terms of those... In, in terms of what Labor's said about this, I mean, you have to give Labor credit for that. But uh, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that, that Labor has not moved to change any aspects of their policy on immigration f- to Australia, which would be, in my opinion, be the way that they could really demonstrate that there's a bit of substance behind these principles that they're putting forward. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's sad that we're holding on to any kind of principles or opposition to this stance, which really is complicity and, uh, and kowtowing to an ally. Um, in terms of the other federal politics issues that have been on burning along, simmering along in this last few weeks, we had um, the Centrelink robo-debt issue. Has anything happened with that, Ben? Well, that's gone quite a bit now, just has been overshadowed by other events, but it's still happened. It most definitely is still happening and people are still being monstered by Centrelink with these fake debts. So that's obviously still pretty important stuff and I'm continuing to investigate that. So I guess watch this space on that one. watching brief. The other thing I've noticed um, continue to come up is housing affordability and we had a brief chat about it last week um, because it's interesting to see that we have uh, Liberal MPs coming out um, and really having differing opinions from the Treasurer's view, which is don't touch negative gearing. Uh, Really, this is just a supply issue, which everyone knows to be not the the true picture of the problem. Um, 
There is this, John Alexander actually uh, had an interview on RN Breakfast and he spoke about um, the idea that negative gearing should be looked at. Uh, He's the chair of the Housing Affordability um, Committee in Parliament and he was um, really advocating for some nuancing, I think his word was, of uh, negative gearing and also looking at Uh, borrowing rates for investors, basically trying to turn down the heat on investors um, and their ability to buy multiple properties in order for other buyers then to be able to um, actually have access to the market. And it seems to be quite in contrast to what uh, the coalition has been advocating. What do you think about that, Ben? Well, I mean, the question has to be asked, where where was he when the Housing Affordability Committee handed down their report last year, which said we're making no recommendations on housing affordability. Um, I'd, he was missing in action there. So so uh, how do you explain that he's come out now? What, what do you think might have changed his mind? I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, he's been a long-term uh, campaigner on housing affordability, actually. So um, I'm, I can only assume that he got nobbled in the committee process by his Liberal colleagues, um, who, of course, many of whom are, are very, very strongly in favour of keeping negative gearing. Um, his electorate is actually most affected by um, the housing affordability crisis. So I see that may be one lever that's pushed him towards actually publicly advocating. But it's pretty risky, isn't it, to come out against the treasurer and the leader in such a way? Well, I guess in the Liberal Party in 2017, there's so much dissent. There's so many people freelancing on their own policy issues that... Uh, hard to keep a track, Yeah, it's hard it? to keep track. And a, and a little bit of dissent on this kind of issue will hardly be noticed when, I mean, Cory Bernardi is openly talking about leaving to start his own party. Mm. Um, I mean, that you know, that's, that's where matters have come to. But, I mean, just to return to housing affordability, this is a crisis that affects us all. As I walked into the Triple R studios this morning, I noticed there's a rough sleeper sleeping in the alcove there. You know, th- this is a, a an issue that's now affecting us um, across of our major metropolises and th- there is no easy fix to this. There's no easy answer. Getting rid of negative gearing won't solve it. Uh, you know, it, we're going to have to spend 10, 20 years building cheaper houses um, and, and some pretty uncomfortable things are going to have to happen. For example, house prices are going to have to fall. You know, and and that's going to threaten a lot of people's investments and that's going to cause major, major issues in the Australian economy. But if we're serious about addressing housing affordability, we have to be honest and say the cost of houses is too high. And that's the thorny nettle that no politician wants to grasp because, of course, the majority of Australians are still homeowners. Certainly, and that's actually something that Alexander mentioned was this idea that, well, would you rather have a house that has a true value that will remain and stay fairly stable or would you like to buy a house at a very overheated price and then have it come down 70%? I mean... You know, it's interesting that we're finally talking about the possibility of a housing bubble in Australia. Uh, it's a, it's an issue that's, you know, um, it, it's something that many economists have debated over a decade now. Um, and certainly there's people like me who thought that there'd be a housing crash for a long time and have been proved wrong, looked pretty silly. And, you know, you've had the economist... Um, uh, Stephen Kukoulos having debates with other economists um, about, you know, whether there'd be a housing bubble pop. Um, So obviously at the moment, housing is still incredibly strong. Prices are growing 10% a year. Uh, Well, whether or not there is a housing bubble or not, the fact is 
with housing so expensive, that's having all sorts of impacts on Australian society. No matter whether you think housing is overpriced or there's going to be a bubble pop, you know, the fact is that there are people who can't afford to live, you know, and that's a very, very serious problem. It certainly is. Um, thank you so much, Ben, for coming in to talk with us. There's just too much to talk about at the moment and I'm really hoping we'll keep this conversation going. We live in interesting times, Amy. We really do. Um, hope to see you next week, Ben. That's awesome. And thanks for coming in. Have a lovely week. Thanks, Amy. I'm very pleased um, to be speaking with a very special and talented author, um, an Australian author, Fiona Wright. She's also a poet and an essayist, and she has written an essay called uh, There's No Dirt in My Food, and it's published in The Lifted Brow. Now, I'm hoping that Skype works and that she can <laughs> hear me. Fiona, are you there? I am. And you can hear me. Excellent. <laughs> I love it. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I've got to say that your essay really resonated with me when I read it. Um, and it's certainly something that I've been thinking about recently. And you put it in such a eloquent, but also really incisive and penetrating way. Um, and just the whole essay is so engaging. I really hope that after our discussion, um, people can go out and read this piece because you really do need to read it in full. Um, but I really want to draw out some of these issues that you describe in your essay. Um, Excellent. So with your with the piece, so it's called There's No Dirt in My Food and it refers to a quote um, that someone said, I believe, when um, they were hospitalised with anorexia and they um, had started on a path of clean eating. And I, I believe that's something that people might be familiar with, which um, if you're not familiar, it's this idea of eating pure natural food from the ground that's untainted by processing or or, you know, nasty, in inverted commas, things like refined sugar. Um, Fiona, how did you, well, first of all, let's start with this quote, there's no dirt in my food. What does it mean to you in, con in the context of this piece? Um, to me, it was, it was really striking the first time I, I heard that woman uh, say, say that line and she, she'd always do it very dramatically, there's no dirt in my food. Um, you know, clean eating is, is such is a relatively new phenomenon, and it certainly wasn't around um, when I first developed my eating disorder, uh, which which was you know in the in the very early noughties, as it were. Um, but it seems to be almost ubiquitous now, and I, I see so many people around me um, developing these very strange relationships with food in the in the pursuit of kind of this idea of cleanliness or purity. Um, or even this idea that if you eat the right things, you're guaranteed um, to be healthy in some way. Um, and it, it, it was really startling to me because, you know, I've been, I've been working for a very long time to, to get better, to, you know, come back from the other side of an, of an eating disorder. And so many of these behaviours that people are exhibiting and passing off as completely normal, like cutting entire food groups out of your diet for no particular reason, um, just because it, it, you know, seems like a good thing to do, are things that, you know, I'd love to be able to do, but I'm not allowed to um, because they're pathological, if that makes sense. Um, so this particular woman um, who I met in a day program in a psychiatric hospital uh, had worked in advertising, and, and as you know, it's a very image conscious uh, kind of field, um, and 
you know, started trying to be healthy and trying to be clean by eating, drinking green smoothies along with all of her all of her colleagues and it just spiraled very quickly for her. Um, and it's, you know, taking her years to, to get better from that. And I think it's something really dangerous that we're kind of not paying appropriate attention to. I couldn't agree more because it's people seem to see it as this um, honourable thing, and as you say, it's it's almost moral and righteous that um, your body is a temple and that you're doing right and you're returning to your original purity as a human being who walked the earth and didn't need all of these extra things like sugar and alcohol and um, you know just anything that might be you know toxic or bad for you. Um, and all the fun things too. Yeah. Exactly, all the excellent <laughs> things. Um, and certainly I, I've seen it myself very recently. There's so many different things. It's not just clean eating, um, but also this this uh, phenomena of paleo diets where um, people want to you know return to the era when uh, people didn't have access to processing machines and to chocolate, um, or certainly not the chocolate that we have now as it is, um, or coffee. Uh, and I just wonder... It's you. You deal with this issue of you. You mentioned paleo. You mentioned clean eating, but also sugar, and that seems to be a yep. really concerning development. And as you say in the piece, um, from your experience when you were um, being treated for an eating disorder, um, there were these different trends, and and you noticed when people um, like what era they were from or what kind of. Um, issues they had and and that really started them along this path uh, based on whether it was carbohydrates or fats and oils or sugar. That's right. Um, so when I when I first became ill, uh, it was sort of in the in the era where carbohydrates were first starting to be demonized as you know empty calories, um, which is a, a term that I find absolutely mind boggling <laughs> really. Um, and and so carbohydrates were the first thing to fall out of my diet, and I still have a lot of difficulty bringing them back in. Um, for people a little bit older than me, it's it seems to be fats, um, and and I've seen this sort of trend of younger men and women um, coming through treatment centres who've been, only been sick for a few years who are terrified of sugar, um, and you know have real have real trouble eating that. And I, it seems to me that. I mean, it's evidence of two things to me, how, how little we actually know um, for certain about nutrition, how the trends change and what, what is, you know, scientifically true um, at any given time is, is likely to be disproved very shortly. It's still such a, such a new science and there's so much research going on um, that's, and results that are contradictory and um, unrepeatable. We, we, you know, I, I read the term recently um, that we're still waiting for the science to ripen, which I, which I really love as a phrase. Um, and so while this changes all the time, that people become really evangelical about whatever it is that, that they believe to be true, um, you know, at, at that moment. And, you know, it is, as you say, it's a new science. It's, um, really just in flux all the time and that's why we have so many different diets coming up and books and um, you know bloggers suggesting that they found the new thing and people taking that up particularly in new year uh, when they think that that might be an important goal for them to have. Um, uh, yes 
being you, you. Yeah, and, <laughs> and and just around me, I've seen it a lot uh, recently, and and found it a bit concerning um, because you see that there's just such a huge industry behind these very um, shaky claims, and that people are making a great deal of money from it, um, and that people are really. It, it seems like maybe subconsciously desperate to find something that will work for them. Um, and really, we're not looking back at, you know, the healthy food pyramid, which is eat all things in moderation. Um, yeah. And instead, we're moving to this, well, surely, you know, sugar is bad. And that's why I'm putting on weight. and My metabolism isn't good. Um, or maybe I should be fasting for two days and then eating for five days because that <laughs> will solve my problems. Um, yeah. What, like... How, from your perspective as someone who's experienced an eating disorder and still, you know, there's, I'm sure, um, plenty of effects that, that still play on your mind as is displayed in this essay all throughout, you know, you keep drawing this, you discuss, you know, everyday life and your observance of people's eating behaviours and habits, which are really problematic, um, not just the language, but the behaviours. Um, and then your experience and perception of this from your own point of view and personal lived experience. Can you ex- um, draw that out a bit more for us? Yeah, I think I think there's something really interesting that you said there. That this idea that a, a diet is going to fix all my problems, um, and I and I think that's very much the logic that underlies, you know, clean eating as a whole, but also eating disorders. There's this idea that, um, you know, when when your life or your body um, is seems to be completely out of control, there is one thing that you can very easily gain mastery over, and that's what you eat. Um, you know, you it, it's. Uh, it's something that you can minutely observe and, and make changes to and, and tweak and it kind of gives you this false sense of empowerment that you're changing something, you're improving something, you're making something better. Um, and, and I think one less kind of, thing to worry about in your life. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't have to worry about everything else because, you know, you're focusing so minutely on the food. Um, but, you know, the, the sort of the behaviours I witnessed <laughs> that really triggered the essay um, was a, a barbecue that I went to uh, with a friend who's an actor, and you know, um, part there's a part of me that sort of, you know, recognizes that for actors, their body is very much a part of their job, so they sort of need to have um, a, a greater sort of sense of observance or, or kind of control over that than kind of your your lay person. Um, but the host of that barbecue kept talking about how she'd been to three different supermarkets that day to buy a particular brand of corn chip that was, you know, not genetically modified and gluten-free and this free and that free. Um, and it was it was really disturbing to me because, you know, I, I do remember days when I'd go to three different supermarkets to make sure they had the one variety of thing that I could and would eat. Um, but I was so embarrassed and ashamed about that because I was spending all of my time in these kind of food rituals um, that I, I would never have kind of laughed about it at a party in this way. And certainly, um, you know, that you could spend a lot of time presumably at supermarkets looking at labels to see what is in the food and what kind of nutritional yeah. value and calories that they might have. Yeah, and I think the more we kind of understand about the way these things, um, the way nutrition works, the more we realise that it's a very complex system and kind of targeting one thing or a different thing is, is really kind of 
not the way to do anything, I suppose. Certainly. And, you know, it's very limiting, as you say, to really cut out one thing or, you know, in some cases cutting out a lot of things. There's, um, you know, an example um, where you say this, this particular person has stated she won't eat this, 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 this and that. And it was, you know, gluten and she wouldn't eat, um, you know, fructose and there's just so much that um she couldn't eat that you wondered whether like what exactly was allowed in this picture and it it seems like if you're living a life and trying to socialize as you mentioned in your piece and um really uh have this opportunity to as you say break bread around a table and really um you know socializing around food is a bit of a ritual in itself um this is quite restricting not only for this person who's self-imposed it upon themselves in the um name of being healthier and being clean and um potentially even having the side effect of losing weight but then your experience which is you know this is a really um a really disturbing issue and you describe um an eating disorder as a real Error and an ironclad and vice-like rigidity. Your, right. Yeah, your lived experience around that, um, you know, is really, it's, it's hard to grasp, I think, for a lot of others who are engaging in this um, behaviour and don't quite realise that it's, um, it's almost like a prison that you have okay. no choice. That's right. Like the thing, the thing that I want to be able to do more than anything else in the world is just rock up to somebody's birthday party or picnic um, and eat whatever's there and feel okay about it. And you know, I've been trying to get better for over a decade now, and I, I'm still not able to do that. Um, but I'm also, you know, very I'm very aware, and I'm really kind of one of the things that I'm trying to do in a lot of my writing is is kind of talk about. The, that, that fear and that terror that's at the heart um, of, of eating disorders because I do think that there's still this idea in the world that it's a sort of willfulness or, or a choice and that all you have to do is make up your mind to, you know, eat normally and you can just flick a switch like that and be better um, when they're, they're such complex and, and terrible diseases, um, you know, that, that kind of have so much anxiety and terror at the heart of them that when you when you do change the way that you eat it, it literally feels like your world is falling apart um and you know you have to keep at it constantly and with you know seven times a day six or seven times a day you have to do this thing that causes you the the greatest amount of um anxiety and, and stress that everybody else around you is sort of taking for granted it's you know recovery from these things takes a minimum of seven years um you know, usually, and um, is, you know, very often incomplete forever. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like, you know, you oscillate between um, trying to stay in control and then, you know, being slightly out of control and that you kind of need to find this balance between it. Um, and sometimes you might tip towards one side and then more to the other, but it's almost like a pursuit of some kind of control or order. And that's a way to deal with the anxiety that it brings. That's right, but it's precisely that pursuit of control and order that keeps you stuck. Um, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, and it sounds yeah. like, a, you know, a cycle that's really difficult. And as you say, people think that that's, um, you know, down to stubbornness or strong will um, and that people are just... Selfishness and vanity, you know, you just want to be skinny and that kind of thing. Absolutely, and that you just need to change your mind and all will be well. You just need to decide that this is right and, um, you know, I want to be better. Um uh, yeah, it's it's really concerning as well because we've seen a lot of um, much younger people start having eating disorders even in primary school and trying to rationalise with people, um, you know, particularly girls but also boys around this is quite absurd. When there's so much messaging coming through from wider society that it's completely okay to cut things out of your diet, to be watching what you eat, um, you know, to be pursuing this sort of purity and, and wholesomeness. And, I mean, these are behaviours that adults are role modelling for their children and other people's children and, you know, seeing so many cookbooks in the non-fiction section. Um, you know, I was recently at a particularly large bookstore and in the new, fresh new non-fiction section, uh, three quarters of it was cookbooks and a great deal of those were about healthy eating or clean eating. So certainly, um, you know, the industry behind it, the advertising, the imagery, um and the role modelling of certain body types is really um, problematic for younger people. What do you um, see as a way out of this um, obsession, really? Because it is an obsession with um, and a fixation, which is, and this is the whole point of your piece, um, with eating and food and the and whether it's good or bad and um, and right or wrong, and, and that it makes people feel guilty if they do. One certain thing, um, and other people may not realise they're making another person feel bad about their food choices. How, how do you see that we can get past this? Oh, that's a that's a very difficult question. You know, I think that the way I, I like to I sometimes explain why I see it as such a problem is I, I kind of like to draw the analogy between. Um, teenagers smoking marijuana you know um there are a lot of them who do it most of them are going to be fine but some of them are going to have a psychotic break we know that and you can't tell until it happens who's who's predisposed to that and i think this is sort of the same thing there's you know you, you don't know um who is going to start on a kind of you know extreme diet and and give it up in three weeks or you know live well with it and be fine and who's going to end up terribly ill um until it happens and, and by, by that stage it's too late. But as, as far as the way out goes, um, you know, I think talking about these things is a really important first step and just trying to, you know, be aware of the meanings of food beyond this kind of moral meaning, the, the you know, the joy that it can bring, the community that, that it can bring, um, you know, flavours, sensations, um, you know, what, what food means in a more social context rather than in this sort of individualised, um, self-controlling, uh, sort of almost punitive sort of sense. And also that it's really just something we need to do to go about our daily lives, that maybe it shouldn't be something that if we have the choice um, that we fixate on. Yes, I, I, always, I always say that the kind of there's this spectrum between food as fuel and, and food as fetish and we're moving really strongly towards the fetish side of that at the moment. Um, you know, and I think thinking of food as purely as the energy that you put in your body in order to make it move, 
uh, is a is a much more healthy way to go about things. Certainly, and also, um, you know, you mentioned carbohydrates and the idea that they're empty calories. One of the yeah. things I was really interested to learn was that carbohydrates are so essential for your brain to be able to think <laughs> at, at its best. If you cut out carbs, you're really going to struggle um, to think clearly and to be at your most optimal, let alone in a good mood, because um, as we know, I'm sure it would make people pretty cranky. Um, yeah. So in terms of, um, you know, these the, the effects of an eating disorder, you know, it isn't just this um, this visible aspect, which is that people um, who have that will lose a great deal of weight um, and they may stop uh, menstruating, um, but also that, you know, that they really, their whole um, ability to function is impeded and impaired um, and their mental processes are really distorted that's right. It, it, you know, even though it has such prominent physical effects in most cases, and not all, there are plenty of plenty of people who are very sick but manage to maintain uh, a, a normal body weight, uh, depending on you know what sort of eating disorder it is and the kind of symptoms that that they're um, relying on. Um, but most of the effects are mental and cognitive. Um, you know, there there is. A lot of problems. I, I had a lot of problems concentrating, um, as you mentioned. That's that's a pretty pretty fast effect. But there's also sort of things like increased anxiety, a kind of increased obsessionality. So you start to see a lot of kind of OCD behaviours and rituals around food, um, which is where that kind of shopping for the perfect thing kind of kind of comes into things. Um, and and just a sort of you know your social life very rapidly shuts down piece by piece by piece because it's too difficult to, you know, go out with friends if there's going to be a meal involved or or snacks or, or with flagging energy um, and that sort of thing. There, there were some really interesting studies um, conducted towards the end of the Second World War where, where perfectly healthy people were intentionally deprived of food um, so that they could watch what happened and they, they all went mad very quickly. <laughs> Yeah, and um, I, I think I remember hearing that they started becoming obsessed with cooking and cooking for other people. Yes, yes, cooking for other people, not eating it. Um, strange things like overheating the food, oversourcing it, you know, adding lots of spices because your, your taste um, becomes impaired, stealing and hoarding, um, as well as kind of collecting cookbooks and, and takeaway menus just to sort of look at and read because, you, you know, everything in your brain becomes attuned to, you know, to thinking about food and it's physiological, you know, your body wants you to be aware um, of whatever food is in the environment so you can pounce on it um, before anyone else does and, and not starve, but it means there's no room inside your brain for, for thoughts of anything else, um, you know, which is a terribly limited life. Absolutely. Um I, I did just do a, a little experiment um, when I was researching this and I typed into Google the word quitting um, uh-huh. and it does this auto-populate. I'm sure most people would know that experience when you type in yeah. a word. It'll guess what you're going to do based on the popularity of certain phrases. And I typed in quitting and the first thing it said was quitting sugar. Wow. Yeah. The second was quitting smoking, which I would have expected to be at the top. And yeah. the, se- the third was quitting alcohol. 
Mm-hmm. So I w- it was really disturbing to me that this has really just entered. It's become so big. It's bigger than I think anyone would have guessed or expected this idea of quitting something and, and getting rid of it. Um, and as you say in your piece, there's just so many different um, ways that it manifests. And yeah. certainly that, um, you know, we re- the behaviours that these um, people are experiencing may not become um, an eating disorder and certainly all dieting does not lead to an eating disorder Um, and people with eating disorders aren't just diets gone wrong. Um, You know, there are many other factors involved as to why someone will develop one. But that... Yeah, but that this is really such a huge problem because, as you say, some people will be at risk and they will actually... um, develop one and that's potentially why we're seeing more and more um, young people and um, people in their 20s and others um, developing eating disorders such as anorexia and bulimia. Um, I'm really um, impressed by your courage and openness to share your experience because I think that it's something that people um, really struggle to cognitively understand um, and and empathise with. Um, they may feel um, sympathy, but it's really hard for people to empathise. So um, thank you to Fiona for writing this piece, first of all. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. <laughs> and and I – sorry, go ahead. You know, I, I – one of the reasons I started writing about my illness was because there is so much misinformation out there and, and that that very misinformation uh, enabled me to stay unwell for a very long time because I wasn't able to recognise my illness as what it was. You know, I thought, you know, because I wasn't a teenager, um, because I didn't want to be skinny, because I wasn't vain or shallow or selfish or any of those things we think make you know, a, a typical anorexic, and I'm, I'm using scare quotes here, um, Yeah. you know, because I didn't fit that stereotype, um, which actually nobody I've met fits with, with these illnesses, fits into that category at all. Uh, I thought it just wasn't what was wrong with me, um, you know, and that, and that caused me a lot of damage. And I, I, you know, really think that the only way to kind of prevent that from happening to other people is to keep talking about it and keep spreading correct information. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And in in one way to do that is to read this essay, There's No Dirt in My Food, which is in the latest edition of The Lifted Brow, and also to read Fiona Wright's Stella Prize shortlisted book, Small Acts of Disappearance, which I've been reading on my phone with an e-book. And I just really am so glad um, that you've written about this, but not only that you wrote about it, but just in such a really poignant uh, way. So also congratulations on um, being shortlisted and your excellent writing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I really hope people do listen um, to this back if you missed any of that conversation to go to On Demand on Triple R. Um, and also if you um, are concerned or think that maybe you might have um, problems with food or um, may have an eating disorder or even any other particular um, you know, issues that are distressing you, to think about calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 or to call um, the Butterfly Foundation's National Helpline on one 800 because the Butterfly Foundation do really important work. Thanks so much, Fiona. Thank you. 
Allens, and I'm very pleased to announce that we have a special guest who's dialing in from Germany, uh, Mr. Lars Kromer. He's the director of the film The People versus Fritz Bauer, or in German, Der Staat gegen Fritz Bauer. And uh, it's a really important film, in my view, because it deals with a period after World War II in West Germany where really. Germans and people around the world are grappling with this issue of the Holocaust and what really happened. And a lot of people weren't really confronting this issue head on and certainly prosecuting those who were responsible for these crimes. And and that was a really slow and arduous uh, process. And one of the people who was confronting this issue head on and who really um, has made a huge difference, but we didn't really know about him until now, is Fritz Bauer, the key person uh, in this story. It is based on a true story. And I'd just like to start, Lars, by talking about Fritz Bauer and how you came to know about him and choose him as a subject for your film. Yes, hi, hi, Amy. First of all, um, thanks for interviewing me on this film. Um, you see, I was born in Frank in or grew up in Frankfurt um, in the in the seventies, and um, and although Fritz Bauer was state attorney of Hess and he, and he was based in Frankfurt, but he died in '68. I never heard of him during my childhood or my teenage times, and when I came across the story, I was really shocked that people don't really know about didn't really know about him in Germany back then when I was developing the screenplay. So basically it was really just out of curiosity and interest for this um, for this man and his story, his untold story. This is why how we started. And you're right there to say that it really is a story that, that hasn't been told in full and certainly um, only recently in Germany and really not in English or English-speaking countries. And it's quite surprising because Fritz Bauer, as you say, was an attorney general in Hesse and he also was a really a special person in the first place. He became Germany's youngest judge at the age of 27 in Stuttgart, uh, which he was in that role until the Nazis came to power and was also a key member of the Social Democrats and uh, was certainly political, politically active uh, before and during the uh, Nazi reign and, uh, and then came back to Germany. He's a German Jew, so he certainly has a German identity and that's the way he views himself, you know, in the film. How did you want to frame a man who has done a great deal for Germany in the legal justice system in this particular issue of war crimes and the Holocaust. What exactly um, were you hoping to achieve by uh, framing it around this hunt for Adolf Eichmann? Well, um, the whole life of Fritz Bauer was very, is very interesting. But from a dramaturgical point of view, the, um, the biopic is, is always difficult um so we we early on we said um let's try to make a portrait of this man just around this one topic this this hunt for out of eichmann and and concentrate on this episode in his life because it basically has everything that's that we wanted to talk about we wanted to talk about the um the fact that nazi crimes were not um, followed up upon in 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 the young um, republic after you know after the end of the third reich there were so many you know the basically uh, Konrad Adenauer the chancellor at that time he he knew he had to rebuild the country and he and he didn't really follow up on all these crimes because he simply didn't have other people or people who were basically not involved in in war crimes 
and um, and because they needed all these people, they they simply um, kept the silence. And there has been there have been um, researches that, for example, you know, amongst judges and and um, state attorneys, up to the 60s, 70s, so many like I don't know, like 80 percent of the people who were in charge, um, you know, in the legal system had been in the same positions during the Third Reich. So so basically, uh, we thought. This episode of Fritz Bauer's Life, The Chase for Eichmann, deals with all these topics, with the silence after the war, with the, um, you know, um, with the attempt of Fritz Bauer from his isolated position as, a, as you said, as a German Jew, as a probably homosexual man, and as a socialist, which was not very much liked in the Adenauer Republic. Um, for all these, all these character traits of him, we could portray in this one um, episode, this hunt for Eichmann. On, on top, it is very interesting that um, that everybody knows that Adolf Eichmann was put to was sent to, uh, put to trial in in Jerusalem. But and you know and and everyone knows about the famous Mossad operation that that um, how they captured him in in um, Argentine and so on. But no one really knew that behind this famous operation was this isolated you know kind of old cuffing man Fritz Bauer um, from his desk in Frankfurt that he really um, found the first lead that, that put the Mossad um, behind Eichmann and so on. So all these, all these things we thought, you know, this whole untold story is, 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 is interesting and it, and it gave us enough room to, yeah, to talk about all these topics that we wanted to touch upon. As we see in the film, he receives a great deal of death threats um, on a regular basis because he is out there as a quite a lone figure um, and and very aware and tactical in his way of um, ensuring that his ultimate aim of um, speaking the truth and bringing these people to justice are achieved. And I think it's a great story arc for a film, but certainly amazing that it is true and around this one man. In terms of how you portray Fritz and certainly it is the true story of, he is really not just finding this lead or encountering this lead through a letter from a man in Argentina, but then he he follows up this lead with the Mossad and then really basically takes it all the way through to them being captured. How much of a, a central figure do you see Fritz Bauer as? And in the film, it seems that he is portrayed as really the unsung hero of this story, um, which is great to see. Uh, you know, brought to light. I mean, this is this film is, of course, um, an interpretation of um, of what of all the sources we read about Fritz Bauer, his biographies, all the material that we could get hold of. There was a huge uh, exhibition in the year before we started shooting the film at the Jewish Museum in Frankfurt that portrayed Fritz Bauer. And what we didn't know up to then, um, we found out in, in, you know, with the help of these um, of the um, historians of the Jewish Museum in Frankfurt. So everything that we talk about is, is basically is basically true. He was a very isolated character. He lived alone. He he had you know he had married during the war, but really just to protect him in his exile in Denmark. He had been um, arrested by the um, Danish police twice because he was together with male prostitutes. So homosexuality played a role in his life. It never did later in, you know, in, in his time back in Germany because it was still under, uh, forbidden under the law 175 um, and threatened with prison. So in order to, to, to be able to work as a state attorney, um, he really had to... Um, uh, yeah, he, t- he really had to give up every kind of 
private life, basically. And he was willing to do that, so did, to, you know, to risk that um, for a bigger goal for executing this job um, was, is part of his character. And, and this is what, why we took in this paragraph 175 problem for homosexual men at, at the time in Germany. Um, the way we portrayed that is um, it's mirrored through this second um, character, Karl Angermann, and that is a, a young attorney who who, um, who works with him on the chase of Eichmann and who, who shares the problem of um, being homosexual at that time. And that is not a real existing a, a character that didn't exist. But Fritz Bauer was only um, working with young attorneys at that time because they were old enough to take over responsibility in the young republic, but you know, too young to be guilty of any war crimes. So he did always um, work with young attorneys, but this Karl Angermann is fictitious. And the, and, um, the reason why he is fictitious is because everything we, we project on this fictitious character um, is, uh, are the things that we couldn't really research on the real characters. And we didn't want to blame or to put anything, you know, to create any, any fake stories about real characters um, that, that really did exist in the time. But, for example, there was a young attorney who, um, who worked for Fritz Bauer, not on the Eichmann case, but he was, um, for example, um, uh, chasing uh, Mengele for, for Fritz Bauer. And he was later blackmailed because he was, uh, years later because uh, of his homosexuality. So, um, so even this Angerman character is, is, you know, is put together from research and from things we read about the time and about the, the young men who worked with Fritz Bauer, but the character itself did not exist. But uh, again, again, everything we talk about, uh, we, we, we talk about Fritz Bauer, um, everything we, we put in the film about Fritz Bauer is really researched and, and kind of profound. Absolutely. And it does come across because um, when I was having a look into Fritz Bauer and looking at some images of him, there were pictures of him at his office desk and the wallpaper behind him is quite literally the same as the wallpaper you see in the film. And I thought that attention to detail was very deliberate and really impressive. Yes, yes. The, it, it's all, we tried to get very close to the real man because he was he is a very eccentric and very impressive character. And the way Burkhard Klausner, our main actor, um, um, plays this man is, is very interesting because he had this, I don't know if you can get that in the, in the in his German is very special. He, he talks with an accent from the southwest of Germany. And Burkhard Klausner, for example, imitates that accent, not because, you know, we wanted to imitate the accent, but because it's so interesting to show that that um, these assimilated German Jews, the kind of bourgeois families that a man like Fritz Bauer came from, they were, you know, they were, they have been uh, living for for generations in Germany, and they were really assimilated, and um, they had a symbiotic existence here with the German culture, and the fact that the Nazis came and tried to separate Germans and Jews, and to say that you know that Jews are not German. Was uh, was just ridiculous because these people, just like Fritz Bauer says, even in the film, his father has been working for the um, Kaiser, for the for the emperor, and um, has been fighting in the First World War um, for for the for the Kaiser. And these people were really they were yeah they were so assimilated and and felt so secure within the German culture. This is why they couldn't believe that 
that Hitler was actually really happening. And, and um, this is, for example, why it was so important to, to, to even portray Bauer with this very specific accent. And then again, you know, then we have this body language of this man. The way he talks, this is why we put him, his documentary material in the beginning of the film, his body language is so tight and he's, you know, he's trying to, you have the feeling that his whole body is kind of exploding any second or so. And, and, and this shows this huge tension, I think, that he was under um, all the time. And, and he was a chain smoker. And we tried to capture all these little details that we could, um, that we could find in his, uh, and, and to, to portray him. You mentioned there the, the performance by Klausner um, and, and that amazing section of, of the documentary footage of the real Fritz Bauer, which opens the film. And it just it's a great way to open it and set the scene, not only because it really brings it home that this is real, but also then it's very hard to tell the difference between the actor and the real Fritz Bauer. Um, I think his, his acting has been phenomenal. Yes, thanks. I, I think so too. I'm, you know, it's one thing to write a script about someone with an impressive story like that. Um, I mean, that's a great treasure to find as a screenwriter. But once you've written the script, you have the problem that you need someone to really play it, and then and then that's really difficult. And and I was so happy that I found Burkhardt and and Burkhardt Klausner is, uh, you know, from a generation he knew Fritz Bauer. Other than me, he, you know, he was a student in the '60s. And Fritz Bauer back then for the student movement in Germany was a real a father figure and a, and 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 someone really important. Um, you know the the student movement in in the 60s was was very strong in Frankfurt, and they had some you know there were some old angry men that were kind of important for these for these students, and that was for example Adorno. The philosopher and the um, and and Fritz Bauer, and then only because Bauer died in '68, I think the majority of people was in Germany was was not holding up his his name because they because he had been unpleasant and he asked unpleasant questions and and people were kind of not fighting for his um, for his reputation enough. But Burkhardt knew him and um, and he was very happy to 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 play this part. And um, one of the lines from that opening monologue, which picks up on what you've just said, is that he says, I believe that the younger generation in Germany is prepared to learn about Germany's entire history and the whole truth, something which their parents sometimes have difficulty confronting, which really does encapsulate what this whole film is about because he does constantly see his peers undermining him at every step, suggesting that Eichmann is in Kuwait uh, when, you know, Bauer knows that uh, that he's in Argentina or has a strong feeling that he does. But you, then you see that uh, the Mossad, uh, although very reluctant in the beginning, do actually see um, this special character of Fritz Bauer and that even... The head of the Mossad in his book, his name Issa Harel, certainly talks about how much of a warm person and how much he was actually loved by those who are outside Germany or those in Israel who are working with him. And that does, does also come through in the portrayal that Klausner enacts in the film, is this warmth and deep humanity and commitment to justice. Yes, yes, yes. It's very important because... Um, um, what what people tried to blame him for was was revenge 
But Bauer was not driven by revenge. It was not, uh, he was not an, an, a man who came back from exile and wanted to, just to put, to, to, to hold trial on those people who committed crimes. What he really wanted was a chance to face the crimes that have been committed and to talk about the things that happened because he wanted to educate the country. And that is the, that is the, the, the sad story behind it all, that, that Germany or you know, probably every culture that, that has committed huge crimes like that um, is, is unable to face these crimes and, that, and people simply don't want to learn from their past. And this is why, he, but this is so interesting about, about Fritz Bauer. He, for example, he, he included himself in, when he talked about the Germany that has to, to talk about its past. He never said we have to talk about your past, but about our past. So, so this is really important that that this um, educational aspect in his um, in his work um, and and the way Germany just tried to you know to not talk about it. You have to see there has never been an intellectual leader of the Third Reich sent to um, prison within Germany. Never. They all managed to basically get rid of it. And I think um, just recently, with um, the, it's less than 10 years ago, with the John Demiano case, for the first time, German courts followed the idea of Fritz Bauer that you could be uh, um, sentenced even if, if you did not pull the trigger yourself. So um, being part of, this, of the machinery was not punished for a long time. So these ideas of, of football, the way he wanted to educate the, the country, that, that's, the, that's the interesting part of his, of his driving force, basically. And a legacy that continues, as you say, that now those who were involved in the machinery of it actually are being prosecuted, or at least the ones that remain. And as you say, he, it wasn't to do with revenge. He was willing to give up the power he had as an attorney general and was risking his reputation, really, to commit a treasonous act um, under the law, which was to give his lead to the Mossad and continue working with them instead of the his own state police and Interpol, uh, because he knew that should he share that information, Eichmann would be tipped off. And he was also willing to give up the the certainty that he would be able to prosecute Eichmann in Germany. Uh, I'm sure he knew that Israel would certainly want to prosecute him in, in Israel. He certainly is portrayed as this, not a sacrificial figure, but just someone who really acts by his ideals and I think that's a bit of a rare um, occurrence but certainly at this time and in this political climate it's very important to have these role models and see that there are these very good people who exist in dark times and in terms of the film and and how you um, actually constructed it and the technicalities of it where did you film the film and uh, what what were some of the technical challenges involved with it? Well, German filmmaking is, is of course, um, limited in its budgets, and um, and we had to recreate a lot of you know of the world of the fifties, which is simply impossible in an in industrial nation like Germany. Everything has been renovated at least four times since, since the fifties, so every corner on the street is does not look like um, back then anymore. And um, and it, you know if you don't work on huge budgets and 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 reconstruct 
kind of studio uh, yeah, build studio lots or whatever then then you have to um yeah then you have to to find ways so that was one thing um interesting was that we had to uh, you know not only shoot in germany but also in israel and basically argentina but um but we couldn't afford all that so we shot the argentina scenes with Eichmann in Israel, which was um, great to go to Israel with the film. And, and of course, we shot the Israel scenes in, in Israel, too. So, um, the, so the German crew um, uh, go, went to Israel for, for two weeks, and that was great, because um, if you work on a film like that, it's, it's, of course, it's very interesting you know, to, to, to meet with Israeli people, production crew. They all have their kind of stories within their families, um, lots of uh, lots of connections to to the Holocaust and and Germany, of course, and that was a very very interesting exchange. You work on long days, not enough budget, and, and try to tell the story as good as you can. And I think the most important thing, as I said, is you have to find actors who can really play these 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 difficult characters believably because that's that's really what the film is about the portrait of this man I can tell you that you can't tell that it's on a low budget um, certainly the production values are excellent and and as you say it really is the acting that carries this film as well as the script and the, and the directing um, it really is impossible to fault and interestingly Michael Schenk who played Eichmann was really quite eerily similar looking to Eichmann um, and I heard that some people also picked that up when you were in Israel yeah it was terrible for him he's an old friend of mine he's a great actor and um, when he when he agreed to play the role of Eichmann he did not know that he would have to play it on an you know, on a marketplace in Tel Aviv and with with Israeli extras playing the Argentinian you know but people and then and, and then the you know they he was there in this Eichmann dress and the extras came and took pictures with their mobile phones of him um, and said I want a selfie with Adolf Eichmann too and he said Lars this is so terrible this position that you brought me in but it was um, but he yeah but it was um, that's the strange things you create when you make films about these issues I mean I'm I was one thing I have to say about this is I was really happy because as a filmmaker, sooner or later you come to the point where you, of, co of course, you want to deal with the German history because German history is so violent and complicated and it is very interesting to tell stories about this. On the other hand, if you make a film about um, the Holocaust, it's always dangerous because it's always also an exploitation of this horror. And um, and this story was, uh, was so interesting for me because as it was... A film I could make because I did not, other uh, except the one scene of Adolf Eichmann, I did not have the problem that I had to make images of this horror to create, to make, a, to tell a story about these things. You know, I did not have to exploit this situation. I didn't have to put extras in camp dresses, and I did not have to put German actors in Nazi uniforms again. So all this is in the subtext of the film, and and that was um, why I felt. That it was okay to make a, to to make it to really actually shoot these scenes because otherwise, I think it's always kind of yeah it's it's hard for me to watch these films um, that, that actually go to the time and 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 reenact this time. 
if you understand what I mean. But this was a great opportunity for me to make this film. I definitely do understand that. And it is why the film is very powerful because you see these people, not only Fritz Bauer, but also those who were Nazi officials or had Nazi leanings in the film. And it certainly is um, even more eerie to see them dressed um, in normal civilian clothing and speaking with this legacy language or understanding of German Jews and the way that they're spoken of and treated um, still seems to echo throughout the film and it really is even more powerful to see that. Just finally, Lars, with your filmmaking at the moment, do you have any intention on um, following up on this story or any other unknown stories of people in Germany around this issue of Germany, the Holocaust, and prosecuting those who weren't brought to justice? Not directly. I'm working on a film. Actually, we start shooting in three weeks. Um, about this, the same time and the same in the late 50s in Germany, um, but um, uh, and a true story, but it's set in the in the East in the GDR, and it's about um, uh, it's about a group of um, uh, students who are just about to finish school, and um, and they got into a terrible trouble with the party and and, and tested their solidarity, um, and it's 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 a very interesting story about developing a political awareness when you're 18, 19 years old. And it's and and it's kind of a counterpiece to the Fritz Bauer film because it's really about the um, how did Germany develop after the tyranny of the Third Reich, and how did people um, deal with all these uh, secrets that were that were around in these fifties, and when that film is finished, yeah, I'm, I'm again working on German history, but that the next time I'm working on a TV series about Bauhaus about the, the times, you know, earlier, in 1990, the, the famous Bauhaus School was opened and we, work, we, we, we make a TV series about that and, and how Nazis came to power in Germany. So I do, again, work about, you know, on German history, but, but slightly different than this Fritz Bauer story. That all sounds really fascinating and I um, wish you all the best of luck for the shooting of um, that film and that TV series. Thank you very much. And, um, and, and thank you for your interest in, in, in my film, and I, I hope that Australians come and watch it. It's, uh, I, would love to, I would love to come and see it myself. It's too far away. I'm really pleased to now have Dr Richard Dennis, who's Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, on the phone from Canberra to talk about his piece in the monthly called A Big Dump, Why is the South Australian Government So Enthused About a Nuclear Waste Dump? Thank you so much, Richard, for joining us. No worries at all. Good morning. Good morning. And um, I know that you're up in Canberra about to check out uh, Bill Shorten's press club address. I wasn't sure where he was doing one. Uh, yeah, no, well, I hope he gets some press afterwards. But, um, yeah, no, I think it's uh, the parliamentary year is about to fire up and Malcolm Turnbull's giving a speech on, uh, on Wednesday. So uh, ho- hopefully we see two interesting and competing visions for the country. Yeah, or I... maybe not. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> it would be nice to see a bit of a difference in competition um, and it's nice to see that the opposition gets to set the tone um, for the year. So it would be very interesting to see if they mention the US too. Um, Look, I, sus- I suspect the US will come up more than a bit. But, yeah. Um, and, and I think the, you know, the Prime Minister's problem is, of course, that Labor has been setting the tone for the last 12 months. So 
Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But good, interesting times. Very interesting times. Um, thanks, Richard, for joining us to talk about your monthly piece because it is, um, it's a, a medium-length piece and very punchy and to the point. Um, it gets to the heart of this issue. And, I mean, the nuclear um, energy and waste issue has been such a huge thing for Australians across the ages and certainly the legacy of Maralinga, um, you know, is in people's minds uh, quite a lot and that was in South Australia. Um, we see that the the South Australian government has floated their intention um, to spend $145 billion of taxpayers' money to build uh, a nuclear waste dump for the world's high-level nuclear waste. So not our waste, but everyone else's waste. And it sounds like it's um, some of the worst waste. Oh, look, absolutely. And, and let's just say that number a few times, $145 billion. Uh, this is the largest public sector investment uh, ever proposed in Australia. It makes the submarines and the national broadband network seem cheap by comparison. And the South Australian government uh, is so keen on this idea, it's actually already held a $13 million royal commission. Not an inquiry. Not, a, not just a consultant's report, a $13 million royal commission has actually recommended to the South Australian people that of all the things South Australia could do to create jobs and, uh, and, and find a, a place for itself in the world, that uh, taking in the world's nuclear waste, the stuff that comes out of uh, nuclear power stations around the world, uh, according to the Royal Commission, that's that's the path forward for South Australia. So it's a, a huge and risky proposal that as yet has had scant analysis. It's quite staggering, really, to think that this is a solution to South Australia's issue. And certainly, I know that there's um, great problems with the industry um, closing down and, you know, submarines and building them in South Australia was a huge issue during the election. But um, certainly, it doesn't seem like a sustainable industry. But one of the things that um, you mentioned there is that there was a Royal Commission, which seems quite unprecedented. And as you say, um, I'll quote you here, that rather than conduct a cost-benefit analysis, the Royal Commission spent $13 million conducting a benefit-benefit analysis. Um, it's it's really shocking to see um, that they weren't interested really in talking about the health risks and environmental risks, but more about their perceived economic benefits and what they could get, not only in the, in the short term in terms of um, the profit, but then uh, investing that into a state wealth fund to, as they perceive it to be, a uh, $445 billion opportunity. Um, what is this trade-off that they're not really uh, talking about? Yeah, look, well, firstly, you're right. The, uh, and I'm glad you like the benefit-benefit line. I, I've never yeah. seen an analysis as... I've never seen a publicly funded analysis as one-sided as this. The, uh, the Royal Commission explicitly says that, look, we didn't put an estimate on the health costs, we didn't put an estimate on the environmental costs, we just looked at what they think the financial benefits to the state would be. And, you know, as we've said a few times now, 145 billion dollar spending you know they're talking about if you reinvested all the profits for 50 years you could accumulate this enormous 400 billion dollar 
sovereign wealth fund. The, the, the numbers are, are, are staggering. They're literally beyond belief, and, and that's the problem. They're beyond belief. Uh, uh, our analysis of the economic modelling that sits behind this uh, shows that they've made very optimistic assumptions uh, about the price that other countries would pay They've made very optimistic assumptions about the quantity of nuclear waste that would be able to come in. And, and when you have optimistic assumptions about price and optimistic assumptions about quantity, well, that helps you generate very optimistic assumptions about the profitability of a product. So, you know, if I assumed that I could sell carrots for $100 a bunch and I assumed I could sell a 1,000 bunches of carrots a day, then I could obviously make $100,000 a day selling carrots. That's only plausible if my guesses about price and quantity are right. And, you know, the, the Royal Commission, despite the $13 million expense, only got, only commissioned one set of economic consultants, and these were consultants with a very long career uh, helping advocate for nuclear waste dumps around the world. So with, with optimistic assumptions come optimistic conclusions, and, and sadly, I think the people of South Australia are being severely misled. Well, you mentioned there the people of South Australia and interestingly, they funded, a, as you say, a multi-million dollar citizen's jury um, and 350 South Australians spent three weekends going over the information, hearing from experts. I believe you um, were even there, weren't you, Richard? Yes, I was. Uh, I was invited by the jurors to uh, to come and talk to them about the economics of the project. I'm glad at least there was someone like you to bring some common <laughs> sense into the discussion, and maybe that's why um, that 80 percent of the jurors found the claimed economic benefits implausible, and more than two thirds of jurors, as you say, do not wish to pursue the opportunity under any circumstances. How can we have um, this disconnect between a citizens' jury, who um, I mean they've clearly uh, instigated uh, a bit of a pub test here and also the South Australian government led by Jay Wetherill. Look, it's remarkable. I, I, I really struggle to answer the question, but uh, one, one answer is that uh, myself and separately two other professors of economics made submissions to the Royal Commission that raised serious doubts, serious doubts about the, the economic modelling and the claims of these huge benefits. And none of us None of us, who all separately made uh, submissions, none of us were actually called to speak to the Royal Commissioner. So a $13 million inquiry that spent hundreds of thousands of dollars employing former nuclear uh, industry advocates to write a report for them, and the Royal Commissioner didn't think it was worthwhile sitting down face-to-face -face with one, let alone all, of the economists uh, who raised serious doubts. So... I think the big difference between the Royal Commission and the Citizens' Jury is the Citizens' Jury shopped around. It got multiple advice, it got uh, multiple perspectives, uh, and, and it tested, it tested those, uh, the, the, the claims. And sadly, the Royal Commissioner didn't think that was necessary. It's really surprising because, um, I mean, most people's um, perceptions of a Royal Commission is that it should be extremely thorough and also impartial, uh, and that... This, uh, this kind of Royal Commission, the results don't really seem to um, give all the sides and have a fairly measured uh, look at, at what the potential risks are to South Australians. Clearly, uh, everyone wants South Australia to be doing well in terms of their industry and people to get 
gain uh, employment. That's There's no question there. Um, but if we look at um, the environmental issues around this, um, I was looking in the ABC and they had reported that there was also... Uh, confusion as to whether this would be an underground um, nuclear waste dump so that it would be buried underground or whether it would be an above-ground nuclear waste dump. Do we know anything oh. more? Look, we do. Anyone that's read the Royal Commission's report would know exactly what's being proposed. But the Royal Commissioner has certainly sought to downplay what he himself has recommended. The, the confusion comes from the fact that the, the Royal Commission recommends an interim above-ground storage site where if you Google interim, you'll see it usually means transitory or temporary, whereas in this case, the interim above-ground nuclear waste site would be uh, operating for over 100 years. So the, the, the proposal put forward by the Royal Commissioner is that high-level nuclear waste from other countries be imported to South Australia as soon as possible, that it be stored on above-ground slab uh, for decades, and, in fact, that we start to import the high-level nuclear waste and store it on a concrete slab, which is code for interim site, we actually start to store it there before we've even identified a site. And, and then once having identified a site, it would take decades more to start digging. So we're accumulating, under the Royal Commissioner and the Premier's proposal, we're accumulating a huge stockpile of high-level nuclear waste while we're looking for and then building the underground site. Now, the, the environmental and the health risks of this are quite significant, but I actually think the real tragedy in this is that South Australian citizens are effectively being told by their government that they can choose a high-level nuclear waste dump or nothing. What would have been interesting, what would have been important, what would have been useful would be a Royal Commission into what are the job-creating opportunities for South Australia in the next 50 years? What are the... If the state government's willing to spend $145 billion to invest in the nuclear waste dump, why not have a Royal Commission into all the things you could do with $145 billion? But rather than open up a democratic debate about where to for South Australia, this Royal Commission's been used to close the debate down and to give people the false choice between new jobs in a nuclear waste dump or no jobs. And I, I, as an economist and as an Australian, I, I think that's brutal and unfair. Well, it is quite staggering that there doesn't appear to be any other plan. You would assume that that's the primary business of government, certainly state government, to make sure that their industries and that their people um, work with the federal government to actually have, um, you know, a prosperous economy and uh, low unemployment rates. Um, in terms of your um, your look at this issue and the long term um, prospects for it, do you th what ha what needs to happen for this to, to come to fruition? Are there ways that people can prevent this from happening? Look, there are. I mean, luckily, we, we do live in a democracy and uh, at the moment in South Australia, the, the opposition and the Greens have now... Well, the Greens have always opposed it. The opposition has now come out after the citizens' fury and said, well, clearly South Australians don't want it. We shouldn't have this. So there'll be a state election in South Australia next year. Uh, it looks like Labor are taking their... Uh, plans for a dump to that election. It looks like the Liberals are taking their opposition to that election uh, and I'm pretty sure the Greens will take their opposition to the election. So uh, the voters are going to have their say 
But there are uh, big problems in South Australia. There is unemployment. There is regional disadvantage. There is a need to get on and for government to help create and target some economic growth at the regions that need it. And I guess my biggest concern is, uh, while I don't think in the long run <laughs> we will build this dump, if we spend five or ten years pretending we might, that's five or ten years where we don't get on with the serious business of creating new jobs for people in South Australia uh, and, 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 and using, using a phony political fight uh, about a $145 billion project to delay addressing serious, urgent problems. Just, well, I, I, you know, I, 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 I hope more for our public debate than that. So do I. And one of the, the really obvious things that might be a solution is renewable energy. Indeed, you know, so we know that South Australia has an abundance of wind. Uh, it's built a lot of wind down there for the simple reason that makes sense to. Uh, the, so, the costs of solar technology are falling all the time. Uh, the potential for battery uh, research and manufacture are huge. Uh, we're moving now towards electric cars. Uh, you know, Tesla didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, it didn't set up in China. It didn't set up where wages were the lowest in the world. It set up where the manufacturing capacity was best, and that was in the US. So there's huge opportunities for Australia uh, if we want to take them. And again, a government that's willing to risk $145 billion on one big bet, you'd think would be willing to, uh, uh, to, to look seriously at a whole bunch of other lower-risk, lower-price job-creating opportunities. Absolutely, and I really hope that that's something they pursue or at least Labor um, offer as an alternative and hopefully uh, take back this issue and prevent uh, a nuclear waste dump from happening and certainly shut down a discussion which was going to go nowhere if 80% of South Australians really don't want it. Well, that's right. It just, I, you know, I think a lot of people in South Australia are shaking their heads at, at, at why the weather or government is determined to spend so much time and so much political capital uh, on, on a project that the private sector won't invest in and voters don't want. But, hey, you know, politics is politics. But if, if you do make bad decisions, uh, there usually are consequences. So uh, hopefully it's not too late for a change. It will be very interesting to watch. I uh, know you have to dash off to the press club, Richard. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.